Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms or washings, if you will, and of laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they should fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs meat for them by whom it is dressed receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have shown toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, key word, slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience Inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by the oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled through refuge, fled for refuge to lay upon the hope set before us, which hope we have is an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Father, we thank you for the reading of this chapter that will be our portion for weeks upcoming. We again understand that there's something here that underscores for us as believers the sinfulness of sin. There is something for us here that underscores the emptiness of all creation apart from you. And that there is something here deliberate about the fullness of Jesus Christ, particularly as he is presented as our great high priest. 
Help us then, as we consider the whole of the chapter today, and then to begin to consider a little bit more in detail the parts of the chapter in weeks upcoming, to master the truths here for the benefit of our souls. Thank you for each one that is here. May we all be hearing. We pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. The view outside the window of a car is far different from the view out the open door of a helicopter. Having flown many times in an airplane, only once was I ever in a helicopter. And the view from above is much more revealing as to the lay of the land in a given spot. Having only been once in a helicopter, I was on another occasion in a similar way up in the air as it related to parasailing on the back of a boat in Cape Hatteras. Today we get to see the helicopter view. We get to see the parasailing view of Hebrews chapter 6. And I do believe that by seeing the parts of the chapter as they unfold in the text before us, that it will help us when we begin to digest the parts of the chapter. And so today is the overview. Now you know and are well aware that we've been calling the section from 511 through 620 an interlude. The reference to Melchizedek, chapter 5, verse 11c, and the reference to Melchizedek, chapter 6, verse 20, C, act as bookends, framing the interlude that is presented to us here, that we might call an interlude of concern. That concern is stated as spiritual dullness of hearing, chapter 5, verse 11. The concern here is dullness of hearing the word of God, dullness of hearing the truths of Christ. That same concern is stated again in chapter 6 at verse 12. And it's why I called the word slothful the key word of the chapter. Both the word dull, chapter 5, verse 11, and the word slothful, chapter 6, verse 12, are the same word. And they mean slow or sluggish, spiritually speaking. Having further defined this spiritual sluggishness in chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, in the terms of spiritual development, spiritual digestion, spiritual dexterity, and spiritual discernment, we can now see, by taking the helicopter view or overview of the sixth chapter, uh, four facets or four parts to the interlude of concern. Today, we're going to identify the four facets and very briefly explain them, and then we'll come back to each one individually to better grasp the spiritual concern that easily applies to each and every one of us, although the meaning of the text is uh, one of which there is uh, uh, great work in order to grasp and, and greatly understand. The four facets are the imperative. We've already introduced it last week at the communion table. The imperative, chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. That is going to be followed by the impossibility, 
in chapter uh, 6, 4 to 6. And then you have two pockets of illustration. You have the illustration in 6, 7, and 8, and the illustration of Abraham in chapter 6, verses 13 to 15. And then finally, the fourth section we call the instruction of the chapter, and the instruction comes in 6, 9 to 12, and 16 to 20. Now, all that's laid out for you in the bulletin so that you wouldn't have to write it down, but I would strongly encourage you uh, in noting the structure, and if you're in the habit of marking your Bible, this would be an excellent chapter to mark as to the structure in the chapter to help you to work your way through it, because every time you leave it for a while and come back to it, there will be a certain measure of confusion when you read through Hebrews chapter 6. This interlude, of course, was necessary because of the incomplete spiritual experience in many of the Hebrews to which the book was written. We all know the problem of spiritual dullness or spiritual slothfulness. That problem plagues many a local church in the modern era. There's hardly a believer alive that hasn't had some period of dullness or slothfulness. And so this appeal is easy to apply to all of us. But the practical benefit of the interlude uh, in application for all of us needs to be understood in the light of the original audience to whom it was directed. And so again, the four parts, beginning with the first word, imperative, chapter 6, 1 to 3. Particularly, the imperative is seen in the words, verse 1, let us go on to perfection. The demand here is wrapped up in that imperative that we introduced last week at communion with the words, carry on. It is imperative. It is a matter of urgent diligence that every child of God carry on. Now the words of this imperative specifically are carry on unto perfection. The Hebrews were challenged to advance spiritually towards the goal of Christ-like maturity. Now, the Bible word perfection has the idea of a thing that has reached its designed goal or a person that has fulfilled their designed purpose. A thing that has reached its designed goal or a person that has fulfilled their designed purpose. I saw a man recently uh, walking beside his motorcycle. Obviously, there was a thing that was not fulfilling its design purpose. I don't know if it ran out of gas or if there was some problem with a spark plug. But nonetheless, you don't buy a motorcycle to take it for a walk. A motorcycle is for riding. And when you see a man pushing his motorcycle on a walk you know that the motorcycle is not living up to its design. It is not a perfect motorcycle in that sense of operational perfection. Likewise, a person that doesn't live up to their, uh, to their life, live up to their calling, live up to their design uh, in life, 
uh, is a person that is not fulfilling or imperfect in that sense. This is the sense in which we are told that the Lord Jesus was assigned in the will of God to suffer in order to be made perfect. Now, you and I always think about Jesus as perfect, and we said when we were back in chapter 2 that the Lord Jesus was forever perfect going back and forever perfect going forward. And yet Jesus, in a particular way, became perfect, chapter 2, verse 10, as he demonstrated his righteousness on this earth in obedience to God the Father as designed. That would be the perfection of trust and obey. And you see the perfect reality of design in trust and obey as associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. That same thing was made an issue to bear in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9. Since that's close, just look at it. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9, speaking of Christ. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So Christ is a perfect example of trust and obey. The word perfection in the Bible is not speaking here of his sinless perfection, although we would often speak of that and should speak of that theologically as an assertion of the scripture. But here the word perfect is being used as it relates to the fulfillment of a design, the completion of a will, Uh, a thing that is operating, or a person that has fulfilled their God-given design. And when it came to the design for God the Son to become man, to live among men, to die for our sins, to rise again the third day, to ascend on the fortieth day, and then to ever live, to make intercession for the saints, when it comes to that, We have to say, perfect, 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 again and again and again. And so that's the sense of perfection here. Now here, the imperative is being directed towards the Hebrew people uh, that this book uh, bears its, its name. And that is that they would live perfectly. There is no expectation in the New Testament epistles that any believer is going to live perfectly sinless. Certainly, as we mature in the Lord, we should sin less. But the oldest and most godly among us still sins at times, don't you now? And so the reality is, is that the idea of perfection here has an idea of of trust and obey. It has an idea of maturity. In other words, it is predicated upon the fact that Christ lived in obedience to the will of God on earth, first advent. So, in light of that, every believer is to live in the will of God during the days of their earthly sojourn as unto the Lord with an ongoing sense of trust and obey. And so we sing it. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy unto Jesus but to trust and obey. The best of us will never be sinlessly perfect this side of heaven, but we can surely live perfectly according to the will of God 
in the plain sense of living a mature believer's life, that when we do sin, we quickly confess that sin, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us that sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and then carry on, and then carry on, and then carry on, and then carry on. Just because you have dropped the ball or messed up doesn't mean you should quit. You should carry on. You should carry it on. Every good coach in athletic endeavor tells the high-strung athlete, and for some reasons a lot of athletes are high-strung, but every good coach tells the high-strung athlete, hey, forget about it. Forget about that last play. Forget about that last thing. And get going. Get in the game. Get going forward. And there's some good spiritual application to that kind of spiritual, uh, uh, to this kind of spiritual advice here in Hebrews chapter 6. This is the plain sense of carry on. Now, I'm going to say a lot more about that next week. You say, why would you, Pastor? Well, because I haven't talked to you about the doctrine of baptisms or of laying out of hands or the resurrection of the dead or eternal judgment. And you need to know why those things are mentioned there. In order to better understand the imperative, carry on, carry on, carry on. When you leave church today, carry on. When you go back to work tomorrow, carry on. Carry on, carry on, carry on. That's the imperative. That introduces us then to the next section, which is called impossibility. The sixth chapter ultimately presents us two forms of impossibility. One is very easy to grasp. The other one, not at all. The easy one is found in verse 18 that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. Now, you can complicate that truth by saying, well, I thought God could do anything, or that God could do everything. So why could he not lie? But, of course, the truth that we easily grasp is that God cannot do anything contrary to his own righteous self. That what God cannot do is deny himself. God cannot lie. It's an impossibility. And so we will continue to sing around here, God can do anything, anything, anything. God can do anything but fail, lie, die, or deny himself. God can't do that. Because he cannot deny who he is as God. It's an impossibility. Now, that's the easy one. And even the easy one in western Michigan takes some theological explanation because there's always somebody out there that would debate everything you say. But nonetheless, the more difficult impossibility, which is found in the text, is located in verses 4 to 6. It speaks of a time when repentance is not possible. We will need to work the text deliberately to grasp the difficult impossibility as referenced here in 4 to 6, but it has to do with the fact that Jesus Christ is the exclusive way unto God, that Jesus is the exclusive means 
of relationship with God. And if you don't accept that, you are condemned already. And if you appear to have accepted that, but deny that, there is no other way, no other means by which you can get close to God except by Jesus Christ. Now that's where this thing will go as we talk about the second element of impossibility that exists in this text. But uh, that'll, be a, that'll be an interesting study. And, uh, and interestingly, we'll begin that study uh, uh, at the end of this month. Uh, the third uh, section of the chapter, taking the helicopter, or what I call the parasailing view, is the gardening illustration of uh, verses 7 and 8. And after getting rain last night, around here in the middle of the night, uh, it is just as fresh an illustration as you can possibly uh, imagine. It says this, For the earth which stringeth in the rain, that cometh off upon it, we could say last night, and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. Uh, the tomatoes are looking better in the pot on the deck at the back of the parsonage because of last night's rain. That's true, that's true. But verse 8 is also true. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected. We want the tomatoes. We don't want the weeds. We want the tomatoes. We don't want the weeds. And interestingly about God's rain, it falls on both. God's rain falls on weeds and tomatoes, or fruit and weeds. We want the fruit, we don't want the weeds. Here's the point. God wants the fruit, he don't want the weeds. I'm not talking about tomatoes. I'm talking about spiritual life before God. God wants fruit, not weeds. It's an easy illustration. Uh, you have the illustration of gardening. I'll say a little more about that in just a minute, 7 and 8. And then you have another historical illustration uh, that involves the man Abraham, 13 to 15. So we'll consider those two illustrations, the gardening illustration and then the, the illustration of Abraham, both of which are making, uh, in essence, the same point about the fact that God wants fruit. He wants a certain element of response from the people that are the recipients of his grace. The gardening thought is simple and profound. The gardener waters the garden, and in doing so, he brings necessity to his vegetables, and he also brings necessity to the weeds. The weeds that grow are pulled and plucked. The vegetables are enjoyed. The illustration of the gardener, the illustration of Abraham in this chapter, remind us that God is the gardener, that his rain falls on the fruit he craves, as well as the weeds he detests. God craves fruit in my life and yours. God detests the weeds in my life and yours. God desires from his people fruit. And John 15 says it, much fruit. He acts in relationship to his own so that they would bear much fruit. 
And this really becomes the preaching emphasis and the main teaching emphasis of Hebrews chapter 6. Now, I need to leave this for now for the sake of time, but I wanted to share a little something that I read this past week from Puritan Thomas Manton. It relates, uh, maybe not directly to the illustration of gardening or directly to the illustration of Abraham, as we will develop it in weeks ahead, but Manton said this, quote, Christ never blotted out our debts that we might renew them and go on upon a new course of offending God. That is to dally with God. Our government is batted around the idea, it's a foolish idea, but they bat around the idea of forgiving student debt. And believe me, I know some students that I would really pray, and if I had extra money, give, so that their debt could be eliminated, because the character of the student is really terrific. But most of the students that have student debt, if their debt was to be eliminated by act of Congress and put upon the sore backs of American taxpayers, would just create a, a new opportunity for those students to incur more debt, probably at the coffee shop or some other goofball place that has become, in this crazy world, an American right. Listen, nobody cancels a debt so that the person can go into debt more, including God. You were not saved to do your own thing, to live your own life. You were saved to please God. You were saved to bear fruit unto God. You were saved to honor God and to please God and to walk with God and to bear much fruit for God. How dare you, as a Christian, think that your debt has been canceled so that you could incur more and take, as it were, the libertine attitude of some among the Galatian churches that believed that the death of Christ had given them a license to sin. God help us if we embrace such nonsense when we know so plainly from the scriptures that we have been saved out of this world, that we might take the message of Christ to this sinful world as those that are apart or separated from this sinful world, being blessed of God by grace. God help us not to join the ranks of modern Christianity. May God help us to join the biblical perspective of saints who understand that God wants his fruit. Christ is the fruit 
God wants. And you and I can bear Christ in our lives by walking with God in the light of his word. We are not saved in order to sin unto further consequence. We are saved to bear unto God desirable fruit. The fruit of the true vine, which is, John 15, Jesus Christ. That brings us then to the fourth section of the chapter. I call it the instruction section. The instruction facet, like the imperative, is really very straightforward. You can see it best, I think, in verses 11 and 12, where we read, And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of expectation, the full assurance of hope, unto the end. That ye be not slothful, dull, sluggish, but followers of them who through faith and endurance, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Diligent pursuit by living faith after the fashion of Christ is the will of God for every believer. Of all the things you and I might not know about the will of God for us this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, until next week begins, Sunday, here's something we do know. Diligent pursuit by living faith after the fashion of Christ is the will of God for me. And it's the will of God for you. There is uh, in Christ uh, no sense of, uh, of uh, uh, allowance for spiritual sluggishness. None of us in Christ have rhyme or rhythm or reason to be in a condition of spiritual dullness, spiritual sluggishness, uh, spiritual slothnessness. And if we find ourselves being slothful, you know what a sloth is, don't you? Back in the day of, of the TV program Wild Kingdom with Merlin Perkins. How many of you remember that? Don't raise your hand. You'll show yourself to be old. But back in the day with Merlin Perkins, they'd say, here's a sloth. And then 15 minutes later, they come back and they say, here's that sloth. They come back 15 minutes later and they say, here's that sloth. They come back there 15 minutes say, there's that sloth. And then show it in. Here's the sloth. Four times they went to the sloth, four times they saw the sloth, four times the sloth did nothing. Of course, he did move a little bit, but you couldn't see it between the first 15 minutes, second 15 minutes, third 15 minutes, and the end of the hour show. Slothful. Some people are like that spiritually. They're so sleepy, they're dead. Or at least they appear to be so. Slothful, dull, sluggish is the word we use. There's no excuse for that. There's no excuse for that in my life. There's no excuse for that in your life as a believer. We ought to follow the pattern of trust and obey as it is demonstrated time and again in the Holy Scriptures. We sing it. Living for Jesus a life that is true, striving to please Him in all that I do. That's where we ought to be. That's where we ought to be today. 
That's where we ought to be this week. That's where we ought to be. I want to mention, too, from the overview, the helicopter view, the parasailing view of the chapter, that it is from this instruction portion that, uh, of the interlude that we uh, have biblical affirmation of our stained glass image at the front of the auditorium. I'm talking about panel number one, congregational left, which would be speaker right. Uh, uh, the cross in the middle on an open Bible uh, is symbolically clear. The cross on the open Bible has the letters Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, brings to, uh, together in the depiction of the stained glass, uh, the central preaching of the cross right over the head of the preacher in the pulpit. And then you have, of course, uh, uh, that symbolically clear reference to the crown, the Savior's crown, King of kings, Lord of lords, to whom we bow, to whom we worship, and the fact that we will cast our crowns at his feet in the coming day. The picture in the stained glass window of the crown is symbolically clear. But then you have a, a, a ship's anchor, and we're nowhere near a lake. Now, there have been two times during the period of time which we've lived here, over 12 years, in which the little crick, creek if you prefer, I say crick, behind the house, behind the parsonage, swelled to the place that Sherry and I sat on the deck and believed that we were in lakefront property. But uh, uh, nonetheless, uh, it's just a crick. And uh, the strangest thing that has happened around Elto, in my opinion, in the last year, is that they built three houses down here on 64th Street, and they're being sold as lakefront property. And the lake that they're on is the firefighters' uh, drainage uh, pond that was created to draw water from fast in case there was a fire. And uh, so I'll tell you what, uh, that is quite a lakefront uh, when you think about it. I don't expect to see any people skiing on the lakefront property in Elto. We might see some squirrels. Uh, I don't know. But uh, I, I don't think we see any people. But I'm just saying, I'm just saying that uh, uh, this idea of an anchor at Elto Baptist Church needs a little explanation because we're not exactly by the sea. We're not exactly that close to Lake Michigan. I still got to drive almost an hour to get there. And so why the anchor? Why the anchor? Well, the answer is chapter 6, verse 19. You know the verse. Which hope, Christ the hope, we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. So our overview allows us to grasp something of the spiritual forest in order that next week we might return to begin to examine the trees. When I had that opportunity, and it was not all that long ago that I had the opportunity to parasail, looked like fun, it really was fun. I loved it. Uh, parasailing at Cape Hatteras, uh, I was able to see from that lofty position in the sky the very shoreline in which our family had been swimming. The view from above didn't help me swim any better, but it did allow me to swim wiser. There were things from above that I could see that helped me to see some things in the water that I would want to avoid. 
and the view from above allowed me to see some things of which I would certainly want to, in swimming, enjoy. And so the view from above allowed me to swim wiser. It is my prayer that the overview of Hebrews 6 would help us all to live wiser to the glory of God. You and I need to remember constantly that Jesus Christ is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that we might glory in our Lord. And the sixth chapter of Hebrews, like no other chapter I know of in the scripture, underscores the reality of the sinfulness of sin and the emptiness of creation apart from God and the fullness of Jesus Christ. And if you and I, over the sixth chapter of Hebrews and study, can see again and again and again the Lord Jesus, then I know that we will all be well served in the preaching of this text to the glory of God. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be able to think upon the big picture in order that we might begin to digest better the specific detail of the imperative and the impossibility and the illustrations and the instruction that is brought to bear concerning living a principled life on earth, here and now, trust and obey. Bless your people with the truth of Hebrews 6 today and in weeks upcoming, should you tarry, we pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.